As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. On November 4th of 2008, America elected its first black president. Senator John McCain had called Senator Barack Obama to concede the race. And as he began to began to deliver his concession speech before a crowd in Phoenix, Arizona, this happened. A little while ago, I had the honor of calling Senator Barack Obama to congratulate him. Please. To congratulate him on being elected the next president of the country that we both love. John McCain, gently but firmly admonishing a crowd of Republicans for booing the election of our nation's first black president. At the time, this was seen as an important moment. It wasn't as though statesmanship was exactly the norm in the Republican Party. It was sort of the opposite, actually. Remember that John McCain's running mate was Sarah Palin, who was a proponent of birtherism, that conspiracy theory that sort of unfounded racist fear-mongering that undermined the historic election of our nation's first black president, that, that turned conservatives against Barack Obama, that you could probably hear in the booing Senator McCain tried to hush that night. Now, McCain did this at a time when Republican presidential candidates still actually conceded elections. Alongside the nostalgia you may feel for that era, remember when Republicans could admit they lost? There is also the fact that Senator McCain understood on election night in 2008 that his job was not to rile up the crowd, not to feed his supporters with words of grievance, even though that's probably what a lot of them felt that night. Instead, McCain did the opposite. He tried to be the adult in the room. He reminded people of the thing that drew the winner and the loser together, that they both loved America. McCain had already shown his willingness to do this kind of thing when he famously talked down a Republican voter at a town hall who promoted the baseless conspiracy that Barack Obama was secretly an Arab. And whatever else you think of John McCain and his legacy, he understood that there was a danger in playing to people's worst impulses. Last night, the current Republican frontrunner for next year's presidential election held his first televised town hall with an actual journalist since the start of this election season. It took place before a crowd of 300 or so Republican primary voters. And the things Trump said in that town hall were shocking and they were untrue and they were appalling and basically everything we have come to expect from Donald Trump. But the thing that is worth taking a second look at is how that crowd responded to Donald Trump and also how he responded to them. 
When Donald Trump said he would pardon the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, the crowd applauded. Will you pardon the January 6th rioters who were convicted of federal offenses? I am inclined to pardon many of them. I would say it will be a large portion of them. You know, they did a very... And it'll be very early on. When Trump reiterated his lack of remorse for endangering the life of his former vice president, Mike Pence, the crowd applauded. Mr. President, do you feel that you owe him an apology? No, because he did something wrong. He should have put the votes back to the state legislatures, and I think we would have had a different outcome. I really do. But he doesn't have the authority to do that, as you know. When Trump mocked the woman he was found liable of sexually abusing, they laughed. I never met this woman. I never saw this woman. I swear to I have no idea who the hell. She's a whack job. You, you did not. What kind of a woman meets somebody and brings them up and within minutes you're playing hanky panky in a dressing room, okay? <laughs> I don't know if you, she was married then or not. John Johnson, I feel sorry for you, John but Johnson. Mr. President, can I. Can no, but I add think, to this? think of it. When Trump suggested we should plunge the country into a self-inflicted financial crisis and then admitted he only wanted it to happen because he wasn't president anymore, the crowd laughed and the crowd cheered. You once said that using the, that using the debt ceiling as a negotiating wedge uh, just could not happen. You, you said that when sure. you were in the That's Oval Office. That's when I was president. To, so why is it different now that you're out of office? Because now I'm not president. <laughs> When Trump called the moderator of that town hall, a journalist standing right next to him, when he called her a nasty person, the crowd cheered and then they laughed. I would like for you to answer the question. Okay, it's very simple to answer. That's why I asked it. It's very simple to, you are a nasty person, I'll tell you. (laughs) Donald Trump fed off that crowd of Republican voters and the crowd fed off of him. And there was nothing that anyone could do about it. Throughout his presidency, we saw time and time again that one of the most dangerous things about Donald Trump is his willingness to rile up and goad his supporters into acts of hate and malice and even violence. And now he's running for president again, and it is very clear there are no adults in the room. Joining us now is Jamel Bowie, New York Times opinion columnist and co-host of the Unclear and Present Danger podcast, and Tim Miller, writer at large at The Bulwark. Thank you guys both for being here. Um, Tim, can you help me understand what was going on in that room last night? The laugh, what almost sounded like a laugh track at points for some of the most disingenuous, hateful, malicious commentary I've heard in a while. Well, there are two things that were happening. One is the room was stacked uh, with Republicans. I think there were, I was obviously there were local New Hampshire Republicans, but I saw in the audience a a former, uh, a guy I know that's a Republican fundraiser, professional Republican fundraiser, Chris Applegate. He doesn't live in New Hampshire. Uh, Trump acknowledged Woody, uh, who it seems it was Woody Johnson, the New York Jets owner in the crowd who was there. So a lot of Trump people were stacked in the audience. So that's part of it. I, I'm not sure that I think that was a really poor production choice. Uh, but I think at a broader level, uh, what we've learned here and the difference between the McCain video he showed at the top and the Trump era is not that that humans, that Republican-based voters, but all the humans don't have darker angels, don't have darker impulses. 
but that Donald Trump has let people feel like it's okay to let those out, to let their freak flag fly. That's what they like about him. And what they like about Donald Trump, despite the fact that he's lost a bunch since then, is that he won in 2016 while allowing them to be their worst selves. Right. They look back at that John McCain video, not with nostalgia, but say that's a loser. Like that's that that's a loser's mentality. And so because Trump happened to win in a very narrow election, losing the popular vote, uh, I, that affirmed this idea that, that they can do that. But this that politics is fun. It's a big, you know, uh, a big game of apprentice. It's a Catskill stand up act and they can enjoy it when he demeans women, when he you know, says that a Capitol Police officer, a black Capitol Police officer is a thug, et cetera. And, and I think that's been really the most probably the most disappointing thing to learn about the entire Trump era, that, that that's what Republican voters want, actually. Um, to that end, Jamel, I'm just really struck at, you know, obviously the cruelty is somehow cathartic or enjoyable for crowds like this, for voters like this. But they are given moments to fix themselves, to act like adults, to re-enter this society, you know, those inflection points are when Trump is revealed to be actually a loser and maybe a criminal and a sexual predator. And yet none of it seems to stick. When I watched that event, think, last, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I, I think none of it seems to stick, though, in part because there there is this uh, this cycle happening where other Republican politicians seem to have resigned themselves to the idea that nothing is going to change or nothing can be changed about the relationship of Republican voters to Trump. And so that fatalism and that fear as well, the fear that actually stepping up to Trump might jeopardize their own prospects, means that when these opportunities arise to maybe break the spell a little bit, other Republicans don't take them. Other Republican leaders don't take them. And, and the thing that makes a lot of sense to me intuitively if in a community of people, other people you trust aren't sounding the alarms about someone else, it's not going to be the case that you yourself are going to sound those alarms either. People tend to react to smoke. They tend to assume there's fire. But if no one around you in the, in, in the community, the leaders that you trust act as if there's smoke, then why would you? And I think that's more or less the, the dynamic that keeps happening with Trump, his voters and other Republican leaders. Uh, Trump, do you, uh, Trump, Tim, sorry, do you agree with that conceit that that this is effectively party-wide failure on display? This is the, the fact that nobody is the adult in the room, that no one's saying, shh, all of you, and more importantly, be quiet, Mr. Former President. Is this an, an indictment of the GOP? It is. I agree with that part, I guess, most of the way. Uh, here, here's one piece of evidence in favor of what Jamel's arguing, right, is that if you look after the election, there really was a moment where not maybe not a huge majority, but a slight majority of the party really was ready to move on from Trump after the 2022 election, right, because they had just lived the 2020 election, now the insurrection, then the midterms go poorly. And a lot of Republicans were speaking out, not about Trump being a bad person, really, but that he was bad for the party. And, and in the bulwark, in the focus groups with MAGA voters, we do, that was coming out. Uh, the problem was that feeling dissipates. You know, that feeling was there for a week. You can't just say at one time. You have to keep 
banging it into the heads of, of your own supporters. And over time, they started to remember the things that they liked about Trump and they weren't being reminded by Republican leaders. And this has been a failure by Republican leaders and conservative media figures for not continuing to speak out. I agree with that. I, I do think the one area where I slightly disagree, though, is because of what I said earlier, Trump's win in 2016 created this mindset when these voters is that we can be cruel, we can focus only on lib owning, and, and we can get what our, you know, have our cake and eat it too and win. And once they had that belief, once nobody stood up to him back then, once he won anyway, the, the water was kind of contaminated, right? And so now even when people do speak out, there's a lot of folks who are like, yeah, you're saying there's smoke, but whatever. People said there was smoke in 2016 and he won anyway. And so I think that in a lot of ways, there's a certain segment of the party that at this point is is really contaminated to such a degree that it would take it's going to take many years, not just a small little window of leadership to, to, to push people off of him. That's dark. I mean, that's a dark prognosis, uh, given the fact that, I mean, he did lose in 2020. And to that point, Tim, uh, Jamel, I'd ask you, you know, Tim, I think, makes a point that people need to be reminded of how bad the bad things were. And and there seems to be this collective, I'm not calling it amnesia, but a sort of downplaying of January 6th, which we certainly saw on stage last night. But Trump was asked about 2024. And let's just play the sound first. Let's. This is Trump reacting to a question about um, the 2024 election. If you are the Republican nominee and you are in that 2024 race, will you commit tonight to accepting the results of the 2024 election? Yeah, if I think it's an honest election, absolutely, I would. I'm old enough to remember when that's the thing Trump said about 2020. If if you have forgotten about what happened on January 6th in the 2020 election, here's another data point. This guy is going to try and do it again in 2024. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the thing people forget, too, is he said this in 2016 as well. This is just a thing that he believes, right, that he can't lose, that if he does lose, there must have been something illegitimate about the process to have caused him to lose. And so I... It, you know, this this will remind a lot of voters who watch this, a lot of like you know normal voters who watch this. Oh, this is what this guy is. But I think for re- Republicans, and I, I agree with Tim here. I think for Republicans, it is a for them it's a reminder that this guy is never going to let himself be a loser. He's always going to be a winner. He's always going to push back against people who say that he's going to lose, and that just kind of binds him to his voters. I mean, the thing the thing that makes Trump unique is that he does have this powerful like parasocial relationship with at least a, a small majority of the Republican uh, voter base, maybe more, maybe less, depending on circumstances. But that is that is like his great, <laughs> no pun intended, Trump card. Um, it's what's going to likely help him win. And what it's, it's what allows him, I think, to uh, make these claims, make these bids for I'm never going to I'm never going to acknowledge my defeat because I have this amen corner of people who are always going to stand with me uh, in the face of anything that people say is a defeat. So I think we should expect in 2024, if he loses, we should expect him to try to hold on again. And my view is that Trump is going to be part of our politics basically until he, you know, is incapable of being so right until he physically can no longer be on the scene. But I don't think he's going to leave. I think I think he is sort of he has captured too much of the Republican Party to be able to just leave at this point. 
Tim, the only moment of hesitancy that I saw from Trump last night was on the topic of abortion. And effectively, the president couldn't articulate whether he would uh, try and pass a federal ban, whether he would support one. And I thought it ironic that, like, in the same hour that he has the crowd laughing about sexual assault, he wants to be careful on the subject of reproductive freedom and women controlling their own bodies. Can you explain that to me? I mean, the idea that a Republican Party can reveal itself to, like, be the party that laughs at women who are victims of sexual assault, that it would still care about about what women think about their own bodies on a different topic seems ironic to me. I don't understand the political calculation there. Yeah, I can't explain it to you, actually. I know that I know the answer to this one, Alex. Um, uh, Trump was always pro-choice. I, he never knew how to answer this question. He stumbled on this one way back in 2015 uh, with Chris Matthews, right, when he accidentally said we should criminalize the mothers. And then even pro-lifers were like, whoa, I, you know, we aren't we are not many of us aren't even for that. And then he had to backtrack. Um, the thing is that Trump's New York. He is He's pro-choice. And I think that the people in his circles are generally pro-choice. And so he worries about the political impact of this. Trump, actually, there was reports that behind the scenes in 2020, he was trying to say this wasn't we didn't or excuse me, in 2022, Republicans didn't lose because of, you know, the election denialism. They lost because of the overturn of Roe and all these got all these candidates went too far on Roe. So this is a practical point. Trump's always thought that he can be extreme on the issues where he's extreme immigration, you know, democracy, et cetera. But then then he could carve a different path on, you know, some of the other social issues where, where he doesn't have as strong of views. You know, it's with him hugging the gay flag, for example. Right. Like this is part of, you know, uh, kind of this reptilian strategic, um, you know, uh, effort that he tries to put forth where where, you know, he sees these issues as, as the places where he can he can moderate. Hmm. I'm just going to say it again. If you're in favor of protecting bodily autonomy, perhaps you should be in favor of women not getting sexually assaulted. Just sure. saying. Just putting sure. it out there for anybody who's listening. I mean, Jamel, yeah. Jamel Bowie and Tim Miller, thank you guys both for joining me tonight. We have a lot more this evening, including what Donald Trump said on television last night about the classified documents he took to Mar-a-Lago and about that phone call to a Georgia election official demanding he find Trump nearly 12,000 votes. All that talk is probably adding to his legal troubles this evening. And then when, while right-wing politicians in the media are trying to scare Americans about an anticipated surge of migrants at the U.S. border, there are real people with real needs in harm's way, and we will have more on their stories just ahead. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results.
Terms and conditions apply. When it comes to your documents, did you ever show those classified documents to anyone? Not really. I would have the right to. By the way, they were declassified after. Not not that I can think of. Let me just tell you, I have the absolute right to do whatever I want with them. I have the right. Uh, Not really. Not that I can think of. That's how Donald Trump last night further complicated his already murky legal picture. It is entirely possible that special counsel Jack Smith has now added that clip to his evidence file, because if Trump did show even one of the hundreds of classified documents he apparently squirreled away at Mar-a-Lago, if he even showed one of them to someone without authorization, that would amount to a violation of the Espionage Act, and it could land him up to 10 years in prison. Amazingly, this wasn't the only self-incriminating answer the former president gave last night about that particular investigation. Why did you take those documents with you when you left the White House? I had every right to under the Presidential Records Act. You have the Presidential Records Act. I was there and I took what I took and it gets declassified. Okay, first, the idea that a president can declassify top secret information with a simple glance is false and frankly impossible. But the red alert there is when Trump says, I was there and I took what I took. That statement contradicts what Trump's lawyers told Congress just last month. They said the Mar-a-Lago probe should be shut down because it was the staff's fault that anything that was packed and shipped off to Mar-a-Lago, Mr. Trump had no clue about any of that. There is more. Trump was asked about another criminal investigation, the one involving his attempts to overturn election results in Georgia, which was when he called Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and demanded that Raffensperger find 11,780 votes for Trump. Why, if this call was bad, I question the election. You asked if this him call to find was bad, votes. I didn't ask him to find anything. Let me We've just heard the audio if tape, this Mr. Call President. Was There's bad, an audio of you asking him to find I you 11,000 votes. I said, you owe me votes. votes because the election was rigged. That election was rigged. Of this course. was a call that was made to question the results of election. I said, you owe me votes because the election was rigged. Joining us now is Rebecca Royfe, a former assistant DA in the Manhattan DA's office and a current professor of law at New York Law School. Rebecca, it's good to see you. I think a lot of people watched that event last night and were appalled. But there were at least three or four people that I can imagine who were, I don't know if delighted is the word, but watching with great interest and enthusiasm. Jack Smith, Fonnie Willis, Alvin Bragg, and probably Letitia James. Um, First, let's just start with Mar-a-Lago and Trump's comments. Um, The idea that he can't say for certain whether he showed classified documents to anyone. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's pretty significant. I mean, you know, of course, it's not an admission, but it's also not a denial. And I think that's really important because that's a serious crime. And it is something that you would remember. I mean, you people hardly ever forget that whether or not they showed uh, you know, highly classified document to a bunch of other people. And so it would provide, um, you know, important evidence to Jack Smith if he were trying to bring that case. Yeah. And we have from some reporting, I believe, in The Washington Post, some indication that Smith's office has been asking about whether or not Trump showed some top secret classified maps to visitors to Mar-a-Lago, which, I mean, again, it sort of sounds like he's opening the door to that possibility in the not really comment. I guess I also, I mean, up until now, 
I think a lot of people have thought the squirreling away of documents, if that's what happened, was Trump's vanity, that he just wanted this stuff. But this seems to open up a whole different, potentially nefarious avenue of prosecution, does it not? You know, this is why defense attorneys do not want their clients to <laughs> go out and talk. Because the thing is, you don't fully know what the prosecution knows yet. I mean, you don't know what's in the government's hand. And so you're you're playing a game in which you don't have all of the information. And so you're locking yourself in and you don't want to do that. And this is one of those situations. Obviously, he's been reading the same reports that you have. Yeah. He's concerned that they may have some information that he doesn't have. So he can't directly say, you know, it didn't happen if it happened. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. But that that is difficult and that's bad. And that's why you don't want your client out on, you know, this town hall giving all these statements. Yeah, you don't you don't <laughs> want your client to be Donald Trump. Let's just face it. Like, it sounds like the worst legal job there is, especially when he does things like in another breath, say about Mar-a-Lago, I, I was there and I took what I took and it gets declassified. This is indicative of two things here. One, that the president was present when these documents were taken, and that he's still hanging on to this notion that he has been disabused of by his own legal team, that he can declassify things just by thinking they are just declassified. He has to, in a public setting like this, embrace the kind of defense that makes him look perfect, that look makes him look not just not guilty, but rather like the ideal person. And that causes problems from a legal perspective, because that defense is not always the most effective legal defense. So he might want to make this look like I'm the most powerful person in the world I and I ha- can do whatever I want. And they were my documents and I get to declassify them and I get to do what I want. However, when it comes to the, his lawyers who are also watching, just as the prosecutors were potentially watching and saying to themselves, this is a problem because we were trying to, uh, at least at first, have a much more cautious approach in which we don't admit that he even knew that these documents were being taken. And now they can no longer offer that that defense. Right. So they're locked into a particular defense that may, from a perspective, public relations perspective, help the president. But from a legal perspective, is a quite a difficult one to make out. Yeah. I mean, and that is the fundamental tension here is Trump is always insisting it was a perfect phone call. I did everything right. I'm not at fault. He's always concerned with the spin on his own reputation, right? The PR management. And that's running straight ahead into the legal reality that he's facing. And I would assume this is, is this something meaningful that Evans, I mean, is this something that Jack Smith can actually use? I mean, can he use this? How meaningful is this kind of audio? It's very meaningful. I mean, these are statements from a potential defendant. I mean, maybe not. But if he's ever indicted, these are statements from him. You can use them. What about Georgia? Um, this, This was a call that was made to question the results of the election. He says it enough with enough force, again, that he's trying to own it as if there's nothing wrong. But that in and of itself, that admission seems legally problematic. Right. So again, from a public relations perspective, I really don't think it's the worst thing to say, look, I thought that those um, votes, that there were far more votes for me. That's how I thought. And I thought you just need to find the number that will push us over. So from a public relations perspective, I can certainly see why he thinks that this is his strongest position. But from a legal perspective, it's much more complicated than that because, you know, you can't necessarily go through any means you can just because you think you are entitled to something, you don't necessarily 
you can't necessarily go in there and demand that you get them back. You and can't so, pressure state-level officials, can't, right? Right. I mean, at least arguably that could be part of the theory of the case for Fonnie Willis. And if that's so, then she has, you know, then he has dug himself into a hole because what he's precluded is a different kind of defense, which he had almost sort of precluded before in his tweets, but even more so now in a straightforward statement, he doubles down on the, this is the perfect call. I did everything right. I did nothing wrong. And you know, that can cause legal, it has the potential to expose him to some serious legal um, consequences. Uh, He might've gotten applause in the room, but he also, as you point out, dug himself even deeper into a legal quagmire. Can we call it that? It's an ongoing story. Rebecca Royfee, thank you for being here tonight. When we come back, conservative media is counting down to doomsday. But we are going to get into the reality and the humanity behind the expiration of Title 42. Stay with us. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. As of today, COVID is apparently over. Done. Today, more than three years since the U.S. declared COVID-19 a national health emergency, that declaration is ending. Now, when we think of the end of COVID, we may think of an end to the death by the thousands, spikes of illnesses, and overrun hospitals, the end of mass panic. But what we don't think about is the toll that COVID took on populations outside of this country in ways that weren't necessarily physical. As it stands, countries around the world are still recovering from the pandemic's just devastating blow to the global economy, especially in Latin America, where COVID-19 killed millions and it fueled recessions and it unleashed widespread political upheaval. In Venezuela, almost 80 percent of the population lives in extreme poverty. The New York Times reports that in Colombia, where worker protections are already weak, joblessness reached its highest rate on record. And Brazil recorded the second highest number of COVID deaths worldwide. So today, the COVID health emergency has ended here in the U.S., but the toll and the chaos of the pandemic, for a lot of people, it is not over by a long shot. And with the end of COVID is the end of a Trump-era policy called Title 42. That barred migrants from this country due to the public health emergency. So with that, with the end of Title 42, many migrants from many of these countries are expected to make a very dangerous journey here to the U.S., looking for something that human beings have been looking for since the beginning of time, 
to escape calamity and persecution and to find a better life. This is from the New York Times today. While migration to the U.S. southern border has always fluctuated, the pandemic and the recession that followed it hit Latin America harder than almost anywhere else in the world. It plunged millions into hunger, destitution, and despair. Many migrants are coming from places like Venezuela, which was suffering one of the worst economic crises in the world before the pandemic hit. A mass exit deepened, bringing the total number of Venezuelans who have fled since 2015 to 7.2 million people, which is roughly a quarter of the population. Take a moment to consider that. A quarter of the country's population has fled. And migrants from Cuba and Nicaragua and Colombia and Guatemala and Mexico and El Salvador, they are all facing very similar realities. So they are leaving. Now, these are images of migrants crossing a dangerous stretch known as the Darien Gap. It consists of more than 60 miles of deep rainforest and steep mountains and vast swamps. The Darien Gap is dangerous and it is treacherous, but it also connects South America to Central America, which gets many migrants closer to the U.S., closer to a better life. Once they reach Mexico, they encounter the Rio Grande, the deep, very dark river that divides Mexico and the U.S. People, including children, die trying to cross this river. But that has not deterred migrants fleeing persecution and poverty and hunger even if the only protection they can offer their children is a floaty and a prayer. Yesterday, during a town hall with CNN, Donald Trump said that if elected president again in 2024, he would bring back his harsh immigration policies, including family separation. Trump said it was the most effective way to convince migrants not to make the trip. They love their family. They don't come which is precisely the thing people say when their children don't need food or medicine or shelter. And other people are taking advantage of this desperation to falsely advertise on social media that the end of Title 42 means the U.S. border is now open. On TikTok, for example, one video that has been viewed more than 100 million times says, quote, May 11th, you cannot be deported. Title 42 has come to an end. That is not true, but many migrants believe it is. Ana Gabriela Gomez, 28, a pharmacy assistant who made less than $100 a month at home in Caracas, left Venezuela with her two young sons in September. After nine terrible days in the Darien jungle, she heard that Mr. Biden was tightening border restrictions against Venezuelans. She didn't quite believe the president. I'm going to go see it with my own eyes, she decided. In her view, the journey was painful, but it was worth it. When we come back, we are going to talk with Julian Castro, former San Antonio mayor and Obama's secretary of housing and urban development, about what is going to happen at midnight tonight and what the reality is for thousands of migrant families already at the border and most most urgently, what should be done about it. That is next. Stay with us. Right now, humanitarian aid groups are implementing plans to help the thousands of people who have arrived at our southern border, some of whom are arriving after weeks-long treks through miles of jungles, some of whom have escaped political persecution, others who have fled rape and violence, and many who have arrived here after weeks huddled in overcrowded tent cities in Mexico. As that reality is unfolding, Donald Trump and conservative media are actively distorting, distorting the suffering at the root of this migration. And they are instead stoking fears about the masses of migrants down at the border. 
Because if you watch Fox News the rest of the day, you will see chaos and catastrophic results at our border. Are local authorities bracing for just an absolute tidal wave or an invasion essentially at midnight? From Yemen, from China, from others. I mean, why are they coming to America? Why are on the terrorist watch list? We know statistically there will likely be hardened criminals even terrorists among them. Record flow of people, crime, drugs, and gang violence, and and none of it's good. Fox News has spent the past 24 hours doing as much as it possibly can to convince America that doomsday is here. They have a countdown clock in the lower right corner of their screen all day, showing the exact number of minutes until a tidal wave of migrants will invade America at midnight which is after Trump's Title 42 immigration policy expires. And while you hear Fox hosts and guests calling these migrants hardened criminals and potential terrorists, they fail to mention the actual evidence. According to crime data from the Department of Public Safety in Texas, which is where most migrants cross the southern border and enter the U.S., U.S.-born citizens are twice as likely to be arrested for violent crimes than immigrants are, and U.S.-born citizens are two and a half times more likely to be arrested for drug crimes than immigrants. But I mean, context is not Fox News' strong point on this topic. Instead, for years now, conservative media has cherry-picked examples of individual immigrants allegedly committing crimes, or it is referred to groups of migrants as terrifying faceless caravans. And that's the point. The point is to dehumanize them. Because if we all saw these people as people who, like many of our own family members and our ancestors, are fleeing oppression or just seeking better lives— then it would be hard to shut them out, to punish them for wanting the same thing that so very many of us wanted to. So what is actually going to happen at midnight when Title 42 expires? And what does it mean for all of us? Joining us now is Julian Castro, former Housing and Urban Development Secretary under President Obama and former mayor of San Antonio, Texas. Julian, thank you so much for being with me tonight. Uh, we need a voice of reason here um, in what is becoming an incredibly fraught conversation over our borders. Can you, for people who don't understand what is going to happen at midnight, can you offer your analysis of what to expect? Thanks, Alex. Yeah. So at midnight, as you've said very correctly, Title 42 is going away. And in its place, uh, the United States is going to go back to Title VIII. That means that uh, many folks who never had an opportunity during these last three years to make an asylum claim are going to have the opportunity to do that under Title VIII. Uh, With that will also come uh, consequences, for instance, if uh, they come and they're denied and try and come back under certain certain circumstances, they can be uh, denied the opportunity for at least five years to make another claim. And uh, if they cross illegally, uh, can be subject to criminal prosecution. At the same time, the Biden administration has put in some new rules that is going to make it harder for people to claim asylum if they haven't done that in another country. So what does that mean for all of those people that we're watching in these videos of folks along the border? Uh, it means for a lot of them that their misery is going to continue. They're, uh, they're waiting. Uh, their aspiration of having a better life in America is going to continue For a lot of them, it's ultimately going to also be denied. Uh, And I remember about four years ago going down to a migrant camp 
on the other side of the Texas border, South Texas border, uh, and seeing that misery firsthand, people who were fleeing hunger, fleeing persecution, fleeing destitution, um, who were following the path that folks have followed for generations of trying to come to, United, to the United States as a beacon of opportunity. I fear that in this moment, Alex, aside from all the technical changes that we're seeing, what we're really seeing is um, the death of a philosophy uh, that said, we will welcome you as immigrants and asylees in the United States of America. It's always been true that, that the majority of people who seek asylum did not actually get it in our country, but we have made it so much harder, especially under Trump and now even under Biden to get asylum in this country. Why, can you explain why that is? And also for, well, let me make this a two-parter. One, there is a broad expectation that there are gonna be thousands of migrants tens of thousands coming across the border and northwards. Uh, major cities are sort of, if you will, bracing for impact, which is to say, figuring out how to allocate resources. Is, do, you find, do you think that is accurate? And if that's the case, why isn't there a better plan to help these folks and help the cities that will be in charge of giving them shelter and resources? Because it does feel like in this moment, there is a discrepancy between obviously the fear mongering at Fox, but the reality of the needs of these people as human beings and what they're going to be greeted with when they come to these cities northwards. Well, there's no question that we've seen a, an uptick, a surge in apprehensions along the border as we get closer to the expiration of Title 42. And when you talk to mayors along the border, they will tell you that those communities, uh, their resources are being strained. They've asked the Biden administration for more help. And to its credit, the administration has done more to help these communities. Um, so we are going to see uh, a, a some surge of people, but it's not going to be the cataclysm that you see on Fox News, the fear mongering that Trump and others have put out there. Uh, the thing is, this was very predictable. Yeah. The Biden administration has had two and a half years knowing that Title 42 would come to an end, and it dragged its feet at the beginning of the administration in trying to end Title 42. And then when it did, the ending of it got held up. Uh, in the courts, which didn't help at all. Because of that, you have this tremendous bottleneck of people, and that's what we see in these images. But look, as Alita Garcia said earlier in the show, uh, we're also a country that can deal with this. We're a country that can handle tens of thousands of people making their asylum claims. We're a country that has the resources and the resolve, if we want to, to handle this in an orderly and a compassionate and humane way. The United States is big enough to do that, and we shouldn't let people that just want to fearmonger and use this for political points make us think that we're not, because we are. That is such an important note to not forget in all of this. We are a big country, and this is the essence, this is the philosophy of America, to be the beacon of hope for people who are coming from the darkness. Julian Castro, former Housing and Urban Development Secretary under President Obama and former mayor of San Antonio, Texas. Thank you so much for your time and wisdom tonight. Thank you. We'll be right back. You're going to be voting on legislation that cracks down on unemployment fraud. It's been quite a week for, for Congressman George Santos. Yesterday, America's serial fabulist pleaded not guilty to 13 felony charges in a federal court in New York, including unemployment fraud. 
According to the Justice Department, Santos unlawfully applied for unemployment benefits that should have gone to New Yorkers who had lost their jobs due to the pandemic. Prosecutors allege that Santos fraudulently received more than $24,000 in unemployment benefits between June of 2020 and April of 2021. After being released on a $500,000 bond, Congressman Santos came back to Capitol Hill for a series of votes, including a vote on a bill to fight unemployment fraud. Wait. Yes, really. Congressman Santos was voting yes on the Protecting Taxpayers and Victims of Unemployment Fraud Act. Do we call this irony? Do we call it chutzpah? Or do we just call it wild delusion? And there's more. Congressman Santos is a co-sponsor of this bill. He is due back in court on June 30th to face those criminal allegations for unemployment fraud. And because it is 2023 and this is now how things happen, Santos also reportedly made a deal with prosecutors in Brazil today in exchange for confessing to stealing money when he was 19 and paying a $2,000 fine and nearly $3,000 in restitution. In exchange for all of that, prosecutors will drop criminal charges that have been pending against Santos for more than a decade. That is, once the check's clear. That's our show for tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. Hey, friends. Are you struggling to attract and retain top talent? If you're worried about recruiting and retention, consider Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices so you can spend more time growing your business and less time on HR. Visit Insperity.com and download their free ebook on how to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your success. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com.